I did a full day presentation in a school. This person came up to me after the day and he said, you know, what you're saying about anxiety, because of course I talked about my problem with school accommodations. I talked about stepping in rather than stepping back. I talked about content versus process, all the stuff I talk about. And it really is different than what this school district has been doing with anxiety. So this young man came up and he said, why are you talking about this? And it's so different than what I've always heard. And he said, in medicine, there's an agreed upon way that they take out an appendix. So why in your field is there not an agreed upon way? And I said to him, well, actually in medicine, there's an enormous amount of variability, right? Like, what do you do about migraines? What do you do about irritable bowel syndrome? But anxiety, it's such an interesting question to me. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about worry and other big feelings in parenting. I'm your co-host, Robin. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. I really want to talk about how we come to believe these things, and I'd really love to talk about some of the things that people believe about mental health and about the way that we do things and how we help people that really aren't working and also aren't really supported by the research. You and I, when we had our babies and were pregnant, we had a ton of discussions about what is the medical culture of approaching something and then what is the evidence-based care model. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they were completely aligned and then other times they were in contrast to one another. So this happens. Yeah. I mean, don't you basically just go around to talk to schools, tell them how they should actually be handling the anxiety in their student population, and then they're all like erasing the dry erase board <laughs> step. <laughs> That they were about to implement for the new school year, right? I mean, it's like, oh, never mind. Yeah. I mean, it happens in schools. It happens in parenting too. So somebody comes into my office and I say, well, tell me what you've done to manage your child's worry. And they're like, all right, so this is what we've learned. And they start telling me that they're doing all this accommodating and they're making sure that their child knows exactly what's going to happen. I try and keep a neutral face, but at some point, like my face must drop a little bit. Or I must start imperceptibly just shaking my head a tiny little bit. They say like, what, what, what? I mean, it just is so common. It is just interesting to me. Like, why is it that people that I know in the field who've been in the field for a long time are still promoting avoidance as a way to deal with anxiety? That's just curious to me. Or trying to prescribe certainty. Trying to prescribe certainty in the absence of certainty, supporting avoidance as a, as a strategy. Why are they still making stress balls? Why are we still giving kids stress balls to manage their anxiety? Are those fidget spinners? That's another thing too. Those fidget spinners. I, we, we laugh about that. I mean, I've laughed about that with a lot of teachers. Teachers saw that coming and they were like, oh my God, what fresh hell is this? Teachers knew that that was going to be a problem in about 3.2 seconds. There was a book that was written several years ago called Nurture Shock, which is one of the first things that I read where they took all of these things that we thought we believed about raising children and looked at the research and said, nope, nope. And I love that book. I've always been sort of drawn to this. And I think you bring up how you and I talked about childbirth. I, you know, we're always sort of saying like, really? Is that, is that really the way it should be? 
So this is not an unusual way for me to think. And I know it's not an unusual way for you to think, which is one of the reasons why we get along so well. All right. So should we talk a little bit about the trigger warning stuff that came out? Yeah. Tell me about this study. Okay. There were a few studies actually, but the bottom line is that trigger warnings don't help. Trigger warnings are ineffective in helping trauma survivors deal with trauma in the classroom. For people who don't know what a trigger warning is, which I think there might be two of you out there, the reason they they started doing trigger warnings is because they didn't want particularly students in classrooms to be overwhelmed or to be re-traumatized by reading about something, being exposed to something that perhaps they had experienced. I think of those in college scenarios mostly, but has that trickled down to high school classrooms as well? Yeah, not as much as in college, but absolutely it has, which is not surprising because as soon as trigger warnings became known as a, as a thing, people started thinking, well, this is really important and it's necessary. What the research showed, and this is a study that was done, there were two studies that one was done just recently another one done about a year ago. We can put the links in the show notes. What it said is that trigger warnings weren't helpful for trauma survivors. Even people who had PTSD, even people where they said, we're only going to warn you about the things that you've experienced, so we're going to be specific about the trigger warning. What they found, they weren't even helpful when they were warned about the specific content that most closely matched their specific trauma. What they did find was trigger warnings increased anticipatory anxiety, not surprisingly. So when somebody said, I'm going to give you a trigger warning about this, the anxiety increased in anticipation of what they were going to read. And this totally agrees with what I talk about is that it became a way for the trauma to become a part of the person's identity. And they even have a a specific term that they use for that. They say that the trauma becomes centralized. What they were saying was that it was actually counter-therapeutic because it reinforced a survivor's view of their trauma as central to their identity which is really different than what they thought would happen when they put trigger warnings in. So either the trigger warnings have no effect or they are actually not helpful for trauma survivors, which is pretty interesting. It's almost like every effort to accommodate backfires. Yeah. What are the positive accommodations? Are there any? In anything, you mean with anxiety or with trauma? Well, when you're talking about a trigger warning, that still strikes me as a structure like an accommodation. All of these intentions of trying to help that person. What are some of the ways that schools try and accommodate? Say you've got a child or a college student or a high school student that experienced a trauma. And so you know that they're dealing with that. It's one of the things that the research said is that sometimes giving a warning or Even saying to somebody, this is material that could be difficult for you, and let's see if we can work through it together, is very different than saying, you need to know that this is going to be in this book, or we're going to read about this, 
because this is going to re-traumatize you. If you say to kids, if you say to college students, there was even an example that they gave of a person who was a family law professor in which they're dealing with all sorts of things in family law, that they would say, we're going to be dealing with some difficult subject matter here. And if there's something that you want to talk about, or if there's something that I need to know, please let me know. That puts the control back into the person who's experienced the trauma rather than this language of trigger warning that you are going to be triggered, that this is something that you can't handle, and really, truly, that you have identified yourself as somebody who this trauma is now central to your identity. If we put in a accommodation, you see, the word accommodation with anxiety is so tricky for me, but if we put in a caveat, if we put in some language that says, we recognize that this might be challenging for you, And we are here to support you and to develop some skills so that you can step into it. Rather than we recognize that this will be traumatic for you and we will do everything to prevent you from experiencing these things. I think that's the difference. Picture the thing that you've always wanted to learn. And now picture that you're learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world at it. It's fantastic, and that's what you get with Masterclass. I recently listened to Matthew Walker's talk on sleep and the importance of consistency with sleep. I loved Bobby Brown's Masterclass, gave me all these tips about putting on makeup because, you know, I'm in front of a camera sometimes and I want to look good, and Bobby was such a big help. So this year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Like I actually put on makeup the way that Bobby Brown taught me how to put on makeup. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Masterclass offers over 180 instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss, Think Like a Boss with Martha Stewart, or maybe you want to learn how to just make your makeup look better with Bobby Brown or sleep better with Matthew Walker, with Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. I loved it. There are over 200 classes to pick from. New classes are added every single month, like a class that talks about your gut health. So many interesting things to learn. So every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk. Right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash Fluster. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash fluster. Masterclass.com slash fluster. You know, when you're listening to a song on the radio and you just have this feeling that the song was written about you or that it was someone that you love trying to say something to you, well, now imagine the power to gift that same incredible feeling to someone you love with an original song that actually is about them and about your relationship. And that Songfinch writes just for you. Songfinch lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people that you love. It's completely unique. It's personal and it lasts forever. 
I had the pleasure of creating a family song with Songfinch about our summer celebrations that we have every year. I knew it was going to make everybody cry, and it certainly did. I got to be honest, I was even crying, giving all of the information and helping personalize my song with the writer that I chose. He absolutely delivered a beautiful acoustic song that captured exactly what I was looking for, and it was so fun to share with the family. So whether you're song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, a wedding or an anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care. Start your song now to lock in one of Songfinch's top artists. Don't waste another dollar on more stuff. It only takes four to seven days, but that song will last forever. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free so you and the lucky person or people can listen to it anywhere, anytime. So go to songfinch.com slash fluster and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, a $50 value. Again, the URL is songfinch.com slash Fluster. Don't forget to share your song with us too in our Facebook group, songfinch.com slash fluster. You had mentioned maybe at another episode, if an elementary aged student had a anxious response to fire alarm tests. So then that student had special treatment to then leave the school or be forewarned and not be startled in class by a fire alarm test. Mm hmm. So how does something like that even apply in something a little more simple? Well, the thing when I talk about fire alarms, I always talk about the skill that we want to teach, right? I'm always thinking about what's the skill that we want to teach. So oftentimes when you're removing a child from a fire alarm, it's because they get startled, they get overwhelmed. And my whole thing is that's actually the skill we're trying to teach during a fire alarm is how do you get startled? and then get your prefrontal cortex back online so you can follow directions. Because it seems very interesting to me that if we're trying to help kids learn how to manage during an emergency, emergencies are generally rather unpredictable, that we would remove the part of the fire alarm that actually most replicates the uncertainty or the surprise of an emergency. Once the alarm goes off, if the noise is loud and you don't want to listen to the noise, I'm totally fine with you covering your ears. But it always seems interesting to me that when people lose track of the skill we're trying to teach and we remove them from a situation, it truly just is often so confusing to me. Like, what are you trying to teach the child how to handle this or how to get away from this? So that would be an example of an accommodation is a removal versus saying an accommodation might be or a skill that we might teach is when the fire alarm goes off. How do we teach kids that if the noise bothers them, that they put their hands over their ears and they practice walking with their hands over their ears? All sorts of different things that we can teach kids that don't involve removing them or excluding them or giving them the message over and over again that you can't handle this because that's the message of anxiety and that's the message that gets kids into trouble. So when we talk about kids being able to step in, when we talk about resilience, when we talk about being able to tolerate discomfort, tolerate uncertainty, the more we step in and trying to remove things, the more we're getting in the way of developing that skill. Do you feel like in the time that you've spent so many years talking to schools, have you been doing this long enough that you've seen the anxiety approach and those accommodations change? 
Oh yeah, no, it's gotten way, way worse. Way worse. So what did it used to look like? In a bad way, what it used to look like is that a lot of kids who were dealing with anxiety were misunderstood. And it still happens now, actually. You know, it's called fight or flight. And there's fight there too. So you've got a kid who's really having a hard time managing something. They get completely overwhelmed. They flip their desk over or they're bolting. They're running away. They're refusing to go to school. And a lot of that was really pathologized as behavioral issues that they were diagnosed with being oppositional and being defiant. So I think in a good way, we've gotten a lot better at understanding what anxiety looks like. There's really something that we can do to help this child, but not treat them like they're naughty, not treat them like they're misbehaving. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has probably helped, which I know sounds a little silly, but it's absolutely true, is when they started having those shows on TV with the dog trainer, like Cesar Romero and those other shows, where he would come in and he would say things like, this is your dog just trying to figure out what's going on. And they, the dog was traumatized or the dog is really anxious or you're giving the dog missed messages. And so he started training the owners to be able to understand and to speak the language of the dog that was being aggressive or that was running away. Honestly, I think I use that analogy a lot because most people have seen those shows. So I think what's gotten better is that they have begun to recognize what's really going on rather than pathologizing or rather than blaming or disciplining, disciplining, punishing, right? I mean, punishing. I heard one story recently, although it's not great. I mean, I heard one story recently where a child was having a really difficult time getting into school and was coming in late. And then also when they were in school, they were acting out kind of aggressively. So the way that they dealt with it is that they suspended him for four days. And I was like, this is a kid that we're trying to get into school. And the, the solution that you guys have come up with is that you suspended him. It just is backwards to me. So I think that has gotten better. But the pendulum has swung really far in the other direction so that now what we've got is avoidance. So instead of saying, okay, so we don't want to punish kids when they're acting out, but where we've gone to is now we don't want kids to get upset at all. So we're going to really make sure that they don't feel uncomfortable. We're going to really make sure that we don't expose them to anything that might upset them. That's the parents too. Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. You know, you can't separate the two. You can't separate the two. Right. Also, what though is interesting too, though, and this is something that has come up more recently, in fact, very recently, is that schools that have had training with me are now really trying to implement a model of skill building rather than accommodation. And parents are getting upset about that because parents aren't up to speed or parents still want to protect. That also is very much like we've been talking about when there is a couple, like there are two parents and one parent is going on the like, let's punish him because he's misbehaving. And the other parent is let's make sure he never gets upset. Sometimes that happens between school and parent. And parents can take on one role and school can take on the other role. But parents sometimes within a family can take on that role. Yeah. When people are on different pages about this, it doesn't work out so well. If I go back to this original question that I posed is why do people do the wrong thing? The answer to that, I think, is that it's easy for us to believe things. And if things make a little bit of rational sense, or if the immediate result is that things get better or you think you're doing the right thing by protecting or by making sure that somebody doesn't feel a certain way, 
then that very quickly becomes the go-to. It very quickly becomes the go-to. It happened with trigger warnings. It happens with anxiety and accommodations. I can tell you another thing that drives me crazy that there's some, just some new research out again, which is with depression, for example, two new studies, one that I think I've mentioned before, but another one just came out that when we tell people who are struggling with depression that their depression is based on a genetic cause or it's based on chemical imbalances of which there is no depression gene and the chemical imbalance theory of depression that it causes depression has been dead in the water for a while, those people are much more pessimistic about treatment. They don't engage in treatment. They don't do as well in treatment. And when I talk about treatment, I'm talking about psychotherapy and other behavioral approaches and cognitive approaches that really help. But that's what most people believe. We did talk about this in the depression episode. Yeah. One of the depression episodes. And another study just came out saying the same thing again. When we use that medical model of depression and we talk to people about it in that way, it's actually counterproductive. And yet that has become the norm. We love quick fixes. Yep. The woman who I consider my other parenting mentor besides you that raised two kids well ahead of me. She always said, if I'm ever at a fork in the road about parenting decisions, I know the one that I find the hardest is going to be the best choice. Mm -hmm. She's like, always take the hardest choice because it's the one that's going to be best for you and your family. Well, and I think that speaks to this idea that I talk about a lot with anxiety is that what we have to do feels so counterintuitive. And what schools need to do also feels so counterintuitive as well. Yeah. Let's placate the student in the moment mm -hmm. and keep going. Right. When I talk to schools about creating a safe space, so they say we're going to create a safe space in the school so that if you're having difficulty, you can go to this safe space. And I always say, well, the message that you're giving is that the rest of the school is dangerous. If this is the one safe space, what are you saying about the rest of the school? And I don't want to have them set up places where the goal is to go and simply figure out a way to get rid of those feelings. I'm telling them, I don't want you to create a safe space. I want you to create a reboot room or a reset room. Let's go to the reset room. And let's really learn the skills that we need to help us manage our emotions and manage our moods and maybe talk about relationships, right? Because so much of what happens with kids in schools impacts their relationship and is caused by their relationships. I mean, my grandmother used to say, what's easy now is hard later. What's hard now is easy later. And I think that's the same thing that your friend was telling you as well. I like the idea about the reset room. Mm-hmm. Most of us carry some level of trauma. Some people carry multidimensional levels of trauma. Mm -hmm. And you are triggered out in the world in a place where you need to still be on and you really can't afford to have your mind go down the wormhole. Mm -hmm. What does that reset look like? What are the skills as parents we should be talking about whether or not our children have yet been traumatized in some way, if they have, and if they haven't, I think the talking about it is still going to be the same because these are skills we want to teach. The way that it was taught to me, it's one of those elegantly simple concepts that is so profound as well. 
is that when you're helping somebody deal with a trigger about something that's happened in the past, whatever words you want to use, what really happens in that is that your brain gets hijacked, right? You get pulled back to those memories. I think we've talked about how that happens. The amygdala stores those emotional memories as a way to protect you. And it really is helpful to talk to kids and to talk to ourselves about recognizing the difference between then and now. It goes back to that thing that I talk about over and over again, that as soon as we can create some distance between what's going on currently in the moment and what happened in the past, as soon as we can create not a disconnection, but a distance, that allows us to stay present so that we don't get hijacked back into the past where that trauma pulls us away from where we are currently. It's the same with anxiety, which tends to project us into the future, right? So if we talk about catastrophic thinking and you're sitting on the airplane and you start imagining what it's going to be like, how it's going to feel for those three minutes when you're plummeting 30,000 feet into the side of a mountain, if you sit there and allow yourself to go to that place and to be hijacked by that thought, then it causes all those responses in your body. So when we're helping kids process trauma, we're really working on being able to stay present. For people who've gone through extreme trauma, there's a lot of things that people do with their bodies. So how do they stay connected? They put their feet on the ground. They stay aware of their senses in the moment. It's all about making sure that you don't get hijacked because that's what really being triggered is that your memory and your body on a very deep level is getting pulled back to that. Robin and I travel a lot. And part of traveling is that you learn that you have to compromise, right? So maybe you're not going to get the best seat on the plane. Well, you know where you shouldn't compromise? You shouldn't compromise with your health care. When it comes to your health, there's no compromising, everybody. Don't go back to that one doctor who didn't really pay attention to you, who rushed you through your appointments. Check out ZocDoc. This is the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, insurance, so literally no compromises here. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be on hold with a receptionist. These doctors all have verified reviews from real patients. So the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is just between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. I have two young adult sons. They are always needing something, right? We've had broken elbows. We've had tonsils. We've had this. We've had that. If I were a young person, if I were a parent trying to help my young person find a doctor, this is what I would use. So Go to ZocDoc.com slash Fluster and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Fluster. ZocDoc.com slash Fluster. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back 
with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So, join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts, starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. And if you go back and you listen to the episode that we did, there was a family question. A mom sent in a question. A family had gone through a trauma. And we talked a lot about the differences between people that successfully process trauma and people that don't do so well with trauma. There are things that you do immediately after the trauma that allow people to process it in a better way. Creating that distance, being able to talk about it. Trauma has a hard time telling a story because it gets so confused in the brain. So helping with that sequencing of this is what happened and this is what happened and this is what happened. All of those things can be really helpful. But avoiding it, stuffing it down, not talking about it, giving the message to anybody that your trauma defines you, that this is going to be a central part of who you are for the rest of your life, that is the exact opposite message that we want to give. And I actually, early in my career, sort of saw this firsthand. I was working as a new young social worker in an environment in which things got absolutely out of control based on people identifying themselves based on trauma that did or didn't happen. That was the interesting part of that whole era. So I've seen it firsthand. I've seen the power of identifying yourself as a survivor of trauma and taking that on as your full identity. And I think that's what they're looking at with these trigger warnings. It increases the symptoms rather than decreases them. And of course, that's not what they intend to do. They're not saying, oh, so let's give these trigger warnings so we can impede people's recovery, or we can lock them into this trauma. But that's what the research is showing that it does. Just like if we say with depression, this is who you are, this is how your brain is, You've got this chemical imbalance. It locks you into that perception of yourself. And that's the dangerous place that we go to far too often in this field, far too often. I get it. It's a way to try and be empathic. It's a way to try and recognize. It's a way to try and acknowledge things that weren't acknowledged for such a long time. But we have to recognize that there is a big difference between acknowledging and helping people move forward and incorporate that versus identifying as that. What I hear you say that I think is so powerful is you talk about the skill building of the ability to prevent your brain from being hijacked. From the past, if it's trauma, from the future, if it's catastrophic anxiety. Mm -hmm. But if we really keep breaking it down the way you always talk about it as skill building, It enables that college student to be confronted with a text that discusses variations of the trauma he or she experienced, but with that strengthened skill of, I know that this is not the present, this is a text. I have that skill of differentiation. Right. That's it. 
that is what is helping that college student be confronted with controversial texts or controversial subjects. Mm -hmm. It's also what is helping that anxious person. Mm -hmm. Creating that distance. And it takes practice and we have to do it all the time. That word differentiation. We want to develop skills that are empowering. We want to give messages and use language and communicate in a way that's empowering. So this is why with depression, we really want to talk about positive expectancy. We want to talk about how you develop the skills of mood management. We want to talk about how you learn how to connect with people and how you develop strong relationships that support you. All of the things that are preventative, that if you are a young person and you've gone through an episode of depression, what are the skills that you're going to develop that are going to help prevent it happening again? If you've gone through a trauma, what are the skills that you want to develop that will help you so that you're not hijacked by it? If you are somebody who struggles with anxiety, what are the skills you want to develop so when those anxious thoughts show up that you're not hijacked by it? If we can keep thinking about it in that way, I think we'll make progress. When we think about it in a way of how do we eliminate, how do we avoid, how do we accommodate this, I think it just takes us in the wrong direction. And I don't think people do it on purpose. I do think that you're doing it because it feels good in the moment and it feels right in the moment. And, which is sort of what got me on this whole rant to begin with, my field does it all the time. We are one of the biggest promoters of these things that make things worse. It just happens all the time. It's not like the mental health field is saying, oh, don't do that, don't do that, and other people are coming up with it. The mental health field, they're the people that are saying it. That's why that question that that young man asked me was such a good one. Why do you guys keep doing this if it doesn't work? You're like, that's a great question. That's a great question. Yeah, I'll tell you another thing that bugs me. <laughs> okay, you're on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so when people talk about coaching versus therapy. So coaching, you know, life coaching and all that kind of stuff is really great because it's generally based on skill building. Now, I have a lot of issues with who can become a life coach and the amount of training that's involved and all that kind of stuff, but that's a whole different issue for another day. But when I've read articles or I've seen websites of people who become life coaches or whatever, and they will say the difference between coaching and therapy is that when you go to therapy, you will go back into the past to understand why these things came up and you really have to work through all your issues, et cetera, et cetera. And if you go to coaching, you learn skills. That is not true. The reason it, it frustrates me is because a lot of people won't go to therapy because they think that's what they have to do. Like they're like, I don't want to talk about my mother or I'm a successful person and I'm handling this and this and I want to go in and I want to figure out how to whatever. I don't want to talk about all that stuff. You don't have to. Sometimes it's interesting and it helps you understand some things, but that's not what therapy is a lot of the time. It depends. You can go to a therapist that'll spend all your time doing that. But that distinction between coaching and therapy always annoys me when I read that, when I see that. Is the misunderstood stereotype about therapy from that, like a psychoanalysis and it's like lying on the couch? People don't even do that anymore, really, do they? <laughs> well, uh, 
they do in small enclaves in East Coast cities. And I'm a former New Yorker, and I knew a lot of people who did it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I'm not saying that that, that perspective of going back and understanding where your patterns come from and all that kind of stuff can't be a helpful thing to do. I talk to people about that all the time. I think about that all the time. It's just that when you go into therapy to go in three times a week lying on the couch with somebody who just sort of nods at you and says, hmm, interesting. I mean, that's just not, not helpful. I was just watching a show the other day and the person was in therapy and they were lying on a couch. And I thought, really? <laughs> right? It's 2021. And they're showing somebody lying on a couch. Yeah. Kids lie on my couch all the time, but that's because they get lazy and they are trying to hide under my pillows. But I don't make anybody lie on my couch. You know, Mark Twain said, I say this a lot of times when I'm going in to give a presentation in a school or I'm talking to clinicians. He said, it's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. And I think it's hard right now in this crazy time that we're living in, and people have been th through so much emotionally, and I think you're exactly right, Robin, that people, people want a quick fix. They just want to feel better, or they just want to fix their kids. And so when somebody says, if you do this or do this or do this, and you can get that quick fix, it's really, really appealing. We just need to step back and look at where does that take us? And the most important thing of all of this that I'm saying, of this whole entire rant that I've been on, is that when we use language that makes something permanent, that when we say to somebody, this is who you are, this is what happened to you, it is permanently scarring, and we have to make sure that we protect you because you are now damaged and fragile, that's the language that drives me crazy. I just hear it too much. I just hear it too often. That's the cool thing about being a human being is that we're so capable of change. We're so capable of learning. I just get great emails and I get phone calls or I have, you know, I run into somebody and they say, oh my gosh, I, you know, my child was anxious and I was doing it all wrong. And I've been listening to the podcast or I read your book or I listened to you at a presentation. And it just, it just made sense. And we started working on it. And our lives are different now. I mean, it really is possible if we can just stay away from this idea that we're permanently scarred, that we're fragile, that we can't change. It's just so, so helpful to think about it in a different way. So helpful. We walk around being so careful. I want you to be open rather than careful. I want you to be open rather than careful. I want you to be vulnerable rather than shut down and closed off. It really just makes a difference. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Flusterclucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, 
best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. 